0: Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, the podcast where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. The fascinating thing about intersections is that we all face many intersections daily. The way we navigate these determines the trajectory of our day and our life. I'm really excited today to have a super special guest, someone that I would consider a paper mentor. He's written so many books that I've read, and it's always uh, enriched my life. We have got with us a professional philosopher, former Notre Dame full professor, Dr. Tom Morris. Tom! Good to be here, man. You guys do some interesting
1: stuff, and it's a a joy to be included.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing what you do now and a little bit about your journey so our listeners can hear more.
1: Well, you know, I would never have guessed what I'm doing now. It's 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 pretty amazing. My mom said to me in uh, high school, she said, look, there's no money for college, so uh, figure out what kind of job you want to do as soon as you graduate. All my friends were applying to college, and so I thought, well, this is, uh, I, I want to go to college too, you know. We got a letter in the mail. I'd been nominated for a Morehead scholarship, mm-hmm. and we had to kind of ask around, okay, what, is, what does this mean? Well, it meant something really good, so I got a free four years at Chapel Hill, and mm-hmm. Uh, because I was a Moorhead scholar, I got a, a free six years at Yale University for a couple PhDs, mm-hmm. and uh, it was the price we could afford. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I kind of followed my heart. It was like um, I'm, my mother convinced me to major in business when I got to Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. but I took a religion class that was really amazing. In fact, the guy was so good, you forgot to take notes. Mm. And uh, then I had a philosophy class that was just as good. And I thought, well, this is stuff I love. Um, I had always been a smart kid, but I'd never really had a life of the mind. I knew how to memorize stuff, how to do tests, mm-hmm. but nobody had awakened me to the excitement of ideas, and intellectual discovery. Mm-hmm. And so these guys did it. And so I said, well, that's what I want to do for people the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I ended up being a professor at Notre Dame for 15 years and, uh, then businesses started asking me, Hey, did the philosophers ever talk about success? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the kind of stuff I studied. Let me look into it. Mm-hmm. And that started a global enterprise of bringing ancient philosophy and modern wisdom into businesses and organizations of all kinds. So I left Notre Dame 27 years ago, mm-hmm. I guess it was. And so here I am today. And people told me, though, well, this is not going to last for six months. <laughs> you know, friends of mine said, how do you, how you know you're quitting a job for life? How do you know people going to be interested in the business world in, in six months? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't, but I think I'm supposed to do this. And, and that's the way... I guess you should live your life there, there aren't any guarantees. That's right. But That's right. there there are callings. I felt a sense of calling to do what I'm doing now and uh it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life.
2: You know it, it's interesting because you know as a philosopher uh, and as a business major mean yeah. you um there's a lot of abstract that people just don't understand. And I remember taking some philosophy classes and I'm like, (laughs) it was very exciting Mm -hmm. to me for the ideas and the abstract. And I was able to see the applicability of it to uh, to the business world yeah. and it's you know as I did research on you it was real interesting to see so I have some real interesting questions for <laughs> you today around that yeah. whole philosophy good. business
1: yeah piece. good good because you walk into an average philosophy class at the average uh, university or college and you hear the professor say things like how do you know you exist And you think <laughs> really this is why I took this course hey mom I'm learning that I don't really know why I exist um but that creates an intellectual humility that creates a sense of discovery. Wayne, I want to understand this more. I thought I I could just take stuff like this for granted. Maybe I shouldn't take so much for granted in Mm -hmm. life. Maybe I make too much assumptions. Maybe I need to dig a little deeper. And then you start uncovering the more practical side of things.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, it kind of reminds me, I changed careers about seven years ago, I guess, uh, from vascular surgery to executive leadership Mm -hmm. and that was a big shift, and you know, folks kind of said, did, did, did he fall on his head? And I mean, they were asking <laughs> my wife, you know, yeah, right. did he fall and bump his head? It sounds like you had a similar experience.
1: You know, I really did, and my dad gave me great advice when I was a kid. He said, life is supposed to be a series of adventures. Mm-hmm. The ones you've been on already are preparing you for the next one, often in ways you can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he lived that in his own life. He switched careers in ways that people couldn't figure out, well, wait a minute, how does this prepare you for that? But he said to me, do something as long as you love it and you think you have something distinctively to contribute. If either of those things changes, you should make a change. Mm -hmm. And again, this sense of calling, this sense of, wait a minute, all these people are asking me to be a philosopher outside the classroom. For 100 years, you can only be a philosopher inside a classroom. Mm -hmm. But we had a guy in America, Ralph Waldo Emerson, 150 years ago, who was not a philosopher in the classroom. He would go all over the country and talk to business groups and church groups and civic groups, all kinds of people, and he had a huge impact on the culture. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great philosophers in classrooms in America, but there's none out in the culture just going where people are. You Mm -hmm. know, you wanted to philosophize with me back in the day. You had to come to Notre Dame. I Mm -hmm. want to come to you. You know, I want to find out what people's problems are, where they live, where they work. And I want to bring them the wisdom in a way that's convenient to them. It's just been life changing for me.
2: You know, um, as I did a little bit of research on you, I saw this book that really caught my attention. (laughs) And it was, If Aristotle Ran General General Motors. Motors. Tell us a little bit about that
1: book. Well, I had done about... 10 or 12 academic books, and it was the early 90s, and people were asking me. An Osmobile dealer called me up, and he said, hey, we have this meeting every year in the Midwestern Oldsmobile Dealers Association, and we always have a motivational speaker, and they always say the same thing. Set goals, aim high, believe in yourself, you can do it. He said, is there anything deeper than that? I said, well, let me look into it. Mm -hmm. Looking into it became the book called True Success that came out in 1994, Mm -hmm. a deeper View of what success really is and how to attain it in your lives, drawn in on all the great philosophers, mostly having to do with goal setting mm-hmm. and all the things the philosopher said. Kind of seven uh, tools to use to make good things happen in your life. And I was g- touring around, giving talks on that topic, and it occurred to me, wait a minute, there's more. Th- there's more to success than just goal setting. There's relationship side of success. There's relationship building. Nobody ever does anything great by themselves. Look at the two of you guys at this table, right? That's an example. And so I said, I got to look into what makes for great relationships, great teams, great communities, great companies. And I'm going to look at what the philosopher said about that. And I kept getting insights from Aristotle. And actually, I, I got to be honest, I can't take credit for the title. I, I gave the book to a hospital president. And he read it. He said, man, this is one of my favorite books I've ever read. He said, but I hate your title. And the title was called Reinventing Corporate Spirit. And that was back in the day when reinventing was a <laughs> yes, thing, yes. you know. And, but, but nobody had put it in, 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 in context with the term spirit. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a cool title. He said, it's a boring title. I said, well, uh, what kind of title do you think? I said, he said, why don't you come up with something like, I don't know. If Aristotle ran General Motors, as mm. said, oh, all, <laughs> bingo. And so I went back over the book. I did a little more research into General Motors. I did a little more research into how I can juxtapose the great philosophers and great organizations and mm-hmm. great teams and great people. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that became the book. And more CEOs have said to me, I've got 30 titles in print now, but more CEOs have said, if Aristotle Rancho de Moses is how I discovered you, because I was walking through a bookstore one day, mm. I saw that title on a shelf, and I said, "I gotta read that one." So <laughs> you can't judge a book by its cover. That's right. Thank you, people, for judging that <laughs> book. <by its> cover. <laughs>
2: That's awesome. That's yeah. an awesome yeah. story. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I, I have to plug this one because it's what I happen to be reading right now. <laughs> Uh, Plato's Lemonade Stand. And I know from talking to you, (laughs) this is an interesting journey, just how it even got to be, without even the content. But, uh, you know, let's let's hear a little bit about that process.
1: Oh, oh, Plato's Lemonade Stand is about is about how to deal with disruptive change. Boy, and it came out in January 2020, right before the biggest disruptive change (laughs) in modern history. And people said, what are you, some kind of genius? You you knew that we're going to have this huge pandemic. We're going to have this huge challenge. I said, no, listen, this is what I am. I'm not a genius. I I may be the opposite. I said, I've been working on this book for 15 years. I've rewritten it 25 times. It's been turned down 44 times. Mm -hmm. I've had to use the advice of the book through the Great Recession, through the loss of family pets, through all all kinds of challenges. I said, what happened is, long ago, an organization was being bought by a, a larger company, and they called me. I'd spoken to this uh, uh, company being acquired. I had spoken to them a number of times, their executives, and uh, they said, look, um, the day the sale goes through, our boss gets $20 million, mm. when the rest of us probably won't even have a job. Uh, what, uh, what can you do to help us think about disruptive change mm-hmm. and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a talk? I said, okay, mm-hmm. I'll come up with something. Mm-hmm. I'll come up with something. And 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 so I gave a talk and they said, oh, it changed the whole atmosphere of the company. There's 750 top executives. And so I said, maybe this should be a book. And then I remember the old saying, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. I grew up hearing people say that a hundred right. times when I was a kid. Nobody ever said how. Right. And I thought, okay, this is how. So the, the book had six different titles along the way, from okay. alchemy wow. to the art of change. <laughs> right, to all, right, but again, right. you know, I should have sent it to that hospital president, by the way. <laughs> he, he would have probably come up with this, though. So we ended up with a good, uh, a, a good clever. When life hands you lemons, go to play because he's got a lemonade stand, and he's going to tell you how to squeeze those lemons, how to stir them into something great. Because here's the idea. We've been talking about resilience for a long time. Mm-hmm. When something bad happens, bounce back. And now we've been talking about grit for 10 years. Mm -hmm. When something bad happens, soldier on. Grit your teeth, soldier on, persevere. But lemons to lemonade isn't about just bouncing back. It isn't about just soldiering on. It's about turning difficulty into delight. And don't we want that? So something bad happens? Well, let's make something good out of it. I was reading an old Stoic philosopher from ancient Rome the other day. And he's got a little sentence that's jumped out at me. He said, disaster... Is Virtue's Opportunity? Mm-hmm. I said, wow. Same guy said, the obstacle is the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, mean, I said, man, if we could adopt that mindset, that's what this book is about. How can you look at an obstacle and see an opportunity? How can you do something about it? How can you be transformative in the world and mm-hmm. in the process, be transformed yourself?
2: You know, that's interesting because um, I had mentioned a friend of ours, all three of ours, Dr. Shrikumar Rao. Oh, yeah. He has... A concept around alternate reality right uh-huh. and so as i'm listening to you <laughs> yeah. i'm listening to the alternate reality yeah. how do you gamify it and change yeah. it up as as you that's as right. you were actually yeah. saying yeah how do you gamify a situation that it's not so good for you yeah but you turn it into a game to make it positive for you and what he also says is you can't change what happened to you, but you can change the story that you tell yourself about what happened
1: to you. That's right. How do you frame it? How do you interpret it? And, you know, it's one thing, it's 40,000 feet to say uh, lemons to lemonade, all right, let's get down on the ground and figure out how to do that. And it turns out the philosophers didn't just have good slogans for us. The philosophers had great advice for us yes. about how to do that in the nitty-gritty. Where do you start? Where do you go next? How do you end up? How do you bring people together to make it happen? So it's uh, to, for that to be my job, finding that stuff, because <laughs> it always helps me, and that's my rule. I'm not just going to find what looks like a great idea and bring it to people in speeches and books. I'm going to first try it out in the laboratory of my own life. I'm going to try it out on a small scale with an organization or two. And then if people really respond and if things really change, well, then it's going to become a regular talk. It's going to become a book because I don't want to spread ideas out there that sound good on the surface but might end up not working. I mean, uh you know, I don't want to end up like Socrates, who was poisoned by public right, demand. Right, you know, right, I, mean, right, I don't want right, to end up right, a little better right. than that. So <clears throat> I got to try things out. I got to make sure they work in our time, as well as in other times.
0: Yeah, you know, the fascinating thing that you're working through, and this is a common thread for every guest we've had, is there's a gap between you know, this 40,000 feet and mm-hmm. how you actually execute. Yeah, so yeah, the how right. the process is critical. I mean, you that, know, I'd like to right. hear you talk a little bit about that, that process of pursuit.
1: Well, I was just asked to do a new book that I hadn't planned on doing. And my <laughs> whole career really depends on me saying yes to things that make no sense. So, <laughs> so I've, I've learned okay. to do that. But I've been asked to do a book called uh, Stoicism for Dummies. Mm. Now, back in the 90s, somebody called me, a lady called me and said, hey, my boyfriend invited me to your talk last week in Palm Beach, Florida. He's vice president of CVS uh, drugstore, and I was speaking to 2,500 drugstore executives. And she said, uh, so I came to hear your talk, and I'm the acquisitions editor for all the Dummies books. Mm. I said, really? Because I'd seen Gardening for Dummies, Car <laughs> Repair for <laughs> Dummies, Microsoft for Dummies. Yeah. And she said, we're getting ready to launch Lifetime Learning. And we're going to do some books on the humanities and the arts. And so we've gotten the Metropolitan Museum curator, Thomas Hoving, to agree to do art for dummies. Mm-hmm. And if you agree to do philosophy for dummies, you two will launch our lifetime learning. And so I said, wow, that'd be great. So I did that book, and it's been in every bookstore ever since. And it's brought a lot of great people into my life. Well, uh, just last week, they said, we want you to do this new book. Stoicism is becoming really popular in America mm-hmm. yes, right it now. Is. <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere. It's in sports, entertainment, business, the military. Uh, she said, could you do a book? So I said, well, you know what? I'm I'm pretty busy, but I've got a former graduate student who's a historical expert, and I'm going to team up with him. We're going to do it together. And just rereading all the Stoics. I did a little book years ago, 20 years ago, called The Stoic Art of Living. So I knew these guys, these Stoics from ancient Greece and Rome. But the more I read them now, the more I understand principle." has got to be matched with practice
0: mm-hmm.
1: or it just becomes entertainment. A great idea. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, that's good. That sounds great. I love that idea. Okay, what are you going to do with it? That's right. So the Stoics are all about practice. you got to develop some habits in your life. And, you know, we've had a lot of great books. Uh, the Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, Atomic Habits by James mm-hmm, Clear. Mm-hmm. been a bunch of other little books coming out recently about how to cultivate habits in your life. Okay, habits for what? Habits around what? Get good principles, great ideas, and let's operationalize those things in our daily lives. How do you do that? Cultivate a practice. Mm-hmm. That's what the ancient philosophers were all about. So you, you were saying a minute ago, um, you walk into a philosophy classroom and you hear all kinds of ideas. The ancient philosophers said, okay, there's theory and there's practice. Yes. We want to do both. There was an idea of philosophy in the ancient world. It's a way of life. It's a path. Through life, it's very practical. You say that to people nowadays. Really, philosophy practical? They think it's the least practical thing, the most theoretical thing. Nope. There was a split about a hundred years ago, and philosophy in the universities. In the schools went in the theoretical direction out mm-hmm. of jealousy over the sciences, which used to be part of philosophy. You know, there was natural philosophy, mm-hmm. astronomy, mm-hmm. cosmology, chemistry, biology, and there was moral philosophy, which is about, you know, how to know, how to be, how to do. And uh, uh, philosophers just kind of lost the thread of this should really be about practicing good lives. And so that's what I'm trying to bring back into the mix and so this question don't just stay with the principle don't just stay with the idea cultivate a practice on a daily basis and guess what we, we often do that the best well look at you two guys the buddy system yes the buddy system it's hard to do anything great by yourself
2: that's the truth
1: you know and we've forgotten that because our culture celebrates the great person the single great person this woman that man uh or this institution wait a minute. It's always an ecology. It's always a bunch of folks getting together and doing things together they couldn't have done alone.
2: You know, it's interesting. One of uh, Dr. Brown's favorite word is interdependence, right? Oh, yeah. And, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it, there is an interdependence in everything we do. You know, it, it. I always chuckle when I hear people say, well, you know, I don't trust this person. Or I don't trust that person. And I don't trust going into that that particular uh location i'm like well you trust people you don't know every day <laughs> yeah, you know you right. you trust the mechanic that fixes your car when you get on the air the airplane to go to your yeah. vacation you trust a yeah. pilot and you yeah. don't know the pilot so right. let's move away from uh-huh. you don't trust them yes you do because we're all interdependent yeah. but it also reminds me of, of the book by jeffrey pfeiffer i think the knowing doing gap yeah. knowing what you need to do but not knowing how to do it, how do you close that gap? Yeah, that's do, exactly what you're speaking. How you were do you close that
1: about. gap? And then pretty soon you're talking about habits. You know, yes. you're talking about those things that you do uh, without even having to think about it every day. That's you right. know, uh, and and there are all kinds of uh, tricks and tips and techniques about how to make that happen. For example, I married a dental hygienist, mm-hmm. and. I was really bad about flossing my whole life. And she kind of just at a certain point kind of gave up about flossing. <laughs> and I read one of these books. I read one of these books about habits. And I realized, wait a minute, you, you adopt a new habit better if you think of it as part of your this activity, this new activity, not just as something you will do, but as reflecting something you are.
2: Mm. So
1: I started waking up every day. And this is just months months ago or a year ago. I started waking up in de- every day and when I will go to brush my teeth, which I was good about, I would say to myself, I'm a flosser, I floss, mm-hmm. all right? I'm a flosser, I, I floss. Uh, I was co- counseling a young woman the other day who wants to be a writer. Uh, she said, I need to get up and write something every day. I said, well, wait a minute, you're talking about an activity, something you need to do. Why don't you get up every day and say, I'm a writer, I write. Mm-hmm start thinking of that as part of your identity, it's gonna be harder for you not to do it Mm -hmm. during the day. Now, see, the bad side of our politics right now in America is that people have all kinds of beliefs about all kinds of crazy things that they embrace so tightly it becomes part of their identity. Mm -hmm. And that makes it hard to change. Man, don't I want good things to be part of my identity? Mm -hmm. And they be hard to change? Wouldn't that be the magic formula? So I get up every day, I'm a writer, I write. I'm a flosser, I floss. I mean, the list is getting little long now for all the things i have to do every day but if you think of it as part of your identity it's going to be a a hard thing to shake you out of and that's what we need to do with good things in people's lives
0: that's amazing you know a personal Mm -hmm. example of that uh you know my teenage son has really gotten into working out i mean he's always been fit and he's an athlete and everything Mm -hmm. but he Mm -hmm. got into working out and and the discipline around that yeah and you know Certain other things had never been all that important to yeah. him, like you know, constant battle to keep the room a certain way, for mm-hmm. instance, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then I was just having a conversation with him the other day, and he was talking about how when he's bringing all this discipline to his life around working out, it doesn't make sense not to have discipline in several <laughs> other domains, <laughs> right, right? right? And he came to this on his own, yeah. you know, which yeah. you know, it's and it's a, a practice that yeah. he's put into his life that you know really changes things and it's transformational
1: it is it is transformational and one of the other things i'm learning from the stoics as i reread all these ancient texts these days is that they all recommended hanging around with the right people mm. having the right mentors having mm. the right mental models and mm. like when i started when i was 58 years old i'm 70 now when i was 58 i decided i saw a lot of people in my neighborhood that were older than me who could barely walk down the street they were in such bad shape mm-hmm. and i said i don't want to be like them because i'd wake up every morning walk to the bathroom in my house and every everything in my body ached mm-hmm. well you know at the age of 58 i said what's it gonna be like when i'm 80 or 90. i'm gonna go to the gym i'm gonna go to the gym seven days a week two hours a day for one year and see if that makes a difference i set that as a goal and pretty soon i had a workout partner mm-hmm. who was very disciplined and he got me in habits and routines that I might not have found myself. I started having greater discipline in my life, and you're exactly right. It becomes contagious. I see all these people around me with all this discipline in the gym. It becomes contagious. When you start hanging around people who care about fitness, who care about discipline, who care about consistency, you sort of start mm-hmm. catching that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, It becomes <laughs> contagious, mm-hmm. and then it's hard to contain it to one aspect of your life. That's the great thing about operationalizing, implementing an idea. If you implement a good idea in one part of your life, it's going it's to naturally flow into other parts of your life as well. A great philosopher in the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, said, mm-hmm. if I'm experiencing excellence in any part of my life, pretty soon I start experiencing it in almost every part of my life.
0: That's, That's, you know, it, it, you triggered my, my thinking around this concept of contagion. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like contagion doesn't have to be the COVID pandemic, no, right? right? It can right. absolutely. Yeah. So putting that into practice and what does that mm. look like? How do we create these healthy contagions yeah, across yeah. society?
1: Uh, contact is always part of that, right? Look at the pandemic, contact. Mm-hmm. We didn't want the contagion to spread, so you, you isolate yourself, right? Um Good ideas won't spread when you isolate yourself, right? right? You want to have contagion with respect to good things. So what do you got to do? Buddy system, community, hanging out with wise people. I used to say to people, network with sages, people who, who are deeply, deeply wise and good. The more you're around people like that, the more you're going to become like them. We become like the people we're around. It's in every wisdom tradition forever. Be careful of the friends. You associate with because they're going to pull you in. Oh, I'm going to make them better. Wait a minute. You know, and <laughs> you know, one guy around a, a bunch of guys who need to be made better, I think the ratio there, the numbers aren't in your favor if you think you're going to make all of them better. So, what you got to do is you got to just, you got to try to hang around a lot of people who will make you better. And then one on one on one, you can start making other people.
2: You know that's interesting because I remember my grandmother always saying, "You know, you know, boy, you better watch who you're hanging around. <laughs> you know, who, who is that? Who is that new friend right yeah, there? Uh-huh. Where are they uh-huh. from? What part of the city do they live in? Yeah. What does his mother do?" My grandmother used to go all, through all of those questions, and yeah, she yeah. she didn't have a degree, uh-huh. but she's speaking the same language you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, watch who you're hanging around because right. what's eventually going to happen is you're going to end up being like them. So keep yeah, good yeah. company.
1: Keep good company. And, you know, you can't drink uh, pure water out of a poisoned well. That's right. That's uh, right. All the Western traditions right. say, too. So you've you got to be really careful. And the things you mentioned, it's really funny. A kid came into my office at Notre Dame, you know, 30 years ago. And he grew up in a tiny town in Iowa. And he said, when I was growing up as a kid, I could never do anything wrong. Because if I did... Five people would spank me before my mama even heard about it, he said. And I (laughs) thought, you know, there's this idea of accountability in small groups. And uh, this whole thing about, okay, who's his mama? Who's his daddy? Where's he from? We meet people these days without knowing any context. That's right. You know, without any, meet people online, you meet people at, at downtown, you meet people. Wait, and, and who are their friends? You start getting to know their friends. You say, whoa, maybe this isn't the person I thought it was, right? Uh, and I, I, I analyzed a few years ago when the Enron scandal hit America. <laughs> mm-hmm. how, did, how was nobody accountable to anybody else for what was going on? And I said, maybe there are three things that you see in that small Iowa town that you don't often see anymore. And let's see, I call them proximity, Mm. Uh, density, and longevity. Mm. Here it is, proximity. You see people face-to-face. You're not just online, a name online. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're around people all the time. You see how they act to the waiter, the waitress in the restaurant, to the the guy in the retail store. To You see how they interact with people. So that's proximity. Um, uh, 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 Density, you don't just know them. You know their uncle and aunt and you know their cousins and you know their mama and their daddy. So you know where they come from Mm, and longevity. Uh, Yeah, you've known them for a long time. Y'all went to school together. Nobody's going to treat anybody else badly in this situation because you've been friends for 30 years and you're going to be around each other for 30 more years. And so it matters how you treat people. When you drop away in a mobile society, you drop away proximity, you're not face to face anymore. You're just over the phone. You're just over the keyboard. You drop away density. You don't know their relatives, their friends, their ecosystem, and you drop away longevity. I'll never see this guy again. People do all kinds of things they wouldn't do in a matrix of closer community.
0: <laughs> that sounds real familiar, doesn't it, Terry? <laughs> yes, like yes, it we does. we've done an episode on proximity actually and wow. how important that is. Yes. And you know, I think we're Scratching the surface, Terry, of the question you've asked on numerous episodes about what happens right. after we leave the
2: the high school, right? Yeah. Our, our friends, because yeah. I, I, I told Dr. Brown that I like to do business with guys that I sweated with, I cried with, and I bled with. Yeah, Most of these guys that I played ball with, right? Yeah. And then the question happens is, what happens after we leave high school because that's a bond to me that it was right. built over most of the time th- these guys most of these guys I played ball with from the seventh grade through high school oh, yeah and so after that what happens what changes yeah. you know in the deny the, the, the dynamics of it all. I understand that people go off to school you get married you have families but to me in my mind my mental model yeah. is there still should be some communication some contact because yeah. we developed some things there oh and, yeah. and for me you know, more personally, I'm an only child. Yeah, me too. Okay, so so with that, those were my brothers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The family, the family you needed, the extended family you needed, right? And uh, to grow that over years, and then just walk away from it right. for the rest of your life. What sense does that make? That's like giving up a treasure. Right. That's like that that's like discovering a treasure, digging up more and more treasure over year after year after year. And then you've got all this and you say, Okay, time for something else now and you want, Now, life is supposed to be a series of adventures, but that doesn't mean you can't carry your crew with you into that's the right. next that's adventure. Right. You that's should. Right. Right. Even if it's only an advisory sort of way, you know. But some of the most successful business people I've known, they've gathered around them in a business context, people they've known for a long time in other contexts. And that's really worked well because you talk about trust. Those are people you know you can trust and that has a deeper level of that. But, you know, Aristotle said there are a lot of virtues uh, human beings have and that we need to have. And the word virtue, well, the English word comes from a Latin word, virtu, that meant strength or Mm -hmm. power or prowess. So a virtue is supposed to be a strength you bring to any situation. And Aristotle thought the chief virtue is courage. Because if you don't have that one, you're not going to have any of the others when crunch time comes. You're not going to be using them. So we talked about trust a minute ago. People say, I don't know if I can trust him or her or this situation. Well, sometimes you just have to be courageous and give your trust. In a situation where it makes sense, and other times uh, the courageous thing to do is to ask difficult questions and check out somebody <laughs> before you go too far <laughs> down the road That's with them. Right? right. Like, like you were saying, you got to where is he from? What part of the town? What, who is friends? Who is parents? You got to ask these questions. And a lot of people are just embarrassed to ask those questions. They're afraid to offend somebody. That's courage too. Aristotle said courage is in just a, the the guy in a battle. Courage is an everyday thing, and he said, every virtue tends to be the midpoint between two opposite vices. With courage, a situation of risk or danger, the too little is cowardice. The too much is foolhardiness. Mm. Courage isn't foolhardiness. Courage is this great midpoint. It's like the Goldilocks zone, you know, just right, just right.
0: <laughs> That's so powerful. It kind of reminds me of my friend Ryan Berman, right? The return right. return on right. Courage is, right. uh, is the name of his book. Oh, wow and i want to i want to explore this a little bit deeper with you because this this concept of courage and and ultimately i think also how it it is the a demonstration of whether you pass the test or not of what your true values are yeah right so right. you know how does that play through from the great minds you know so you see organizations all the time who have beautiful statements on a wall mm-hmm that may not always resemble their behavior when it gets more difficult, right? Oh yeah. And so play through that with yeah, us this a This is a
1: really important question that came up just the other day. I, I came home from a talk in Nashville, Tennessee and Usually I rest for a few days when I've, I've been traveling, but I had three book clubs, three nights in a row, 90 minutes each, over my newest book that just came out a few months ago called The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now. And everybody on all three book clubs, oh, I love this book. This is one of my favorite books I've ever read. And, you know, an author glows to hear that kind of <laughs> right, stuff. Right. And one guy in one of the meetings said, well, I agree with you on two things. In the book. And he said, I said, well, that's good. And, and he said, well, I got some bones to pick with you about some other things. I said, like what? Give me give me a good example. He said, OK, you you attribute to the founders of America mm-hmm. uh, uh, certain values about uh, 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 freedom and equality and justice and, and, and listed from the Declaration of Independence and other documents. You, know, you list all these values. But look at these guys, you know, look at what they did in their private lives. You know, mm-hmm. they were slaveholders. They didn't pay any attention to what women had to say. They didn't do this. And do that, And so I said, OK. Let's think this through. So he says his view was they didn't have these values at all. Mm -hmm. I said, well, there are two ways to look at values. One is the absolutist way. Either you're perfectly in line with this value or it's not one of your values. I said, that's a hard way to treat values because we all fall short. Mm -hmm. There's another way to look at values. I call it the a- aspirational way. Mm. I'm not perfectly this, but this is what I'm shooting for. Mm-hmm. And I hope to get better at it in the coming days. You can be aspirational for yourself, your family, your community, your nation. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where it's just pure hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't believe in these things at all, but we're running the flag up the flagpole just to manipulate people into thinking we do because we'll get more out of them that way. All right? Every organization, every person is somewhere along that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Do you have these values as absolutists? Do you have them as aspirational? Or is it just hypocritical? Mm -hmm. Most of us are in the aspirational mode most of the time. And maybe we get closer to the absolute mode. The more we grow, the deeper we get spiritually and all that. Because we've known people, they're not going to violate one of their values in even a tiny little way. They're pretty far to the absolute side. That's pretty much an ideal. But a lot of people have fallen short of that. But they're still not utter hypocrites announcing one thing and not even believing it. They're they're just struggling like most of us. But we want to position ourselves farther and farther along that spectrum. And and courage has a lot to do with that because there are a lot of forces pulling us back to take the easy way, uh, to take the way that seems to work here, Mm -hmm. to not miss out on this opportunity. But really, I don't... I don't trust these guys, but I, 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 boy, they're offering me an awful lot here. Mm-hmm. How, how much are you going to compromise? Where where do you where do you leave the aspirational struggle, and you're just sliding toward the hypocrisy? Mm-hmm. So we all need to be self-monitored. I think of a lot of things in life as a spectrum. You know, it's not a light switch on or off. Either you're courageous or you're not. You know. Most of us have some degree of courage mm-hmm. most of the time, but it varies over time and situation. And what we want to do is we want to move ourselves toward the positive side as we grow, as we deepen.
2: That's that's very interesting uh, because I see I see courage that way. Uh, given the situation we're in, we're going to display uh, X, X amount of courage depending on what it is, right? And then the key is how do you take the aspirational and make it reality? Right, right. right. And that's through, of course, having a ton of of uh, courage, as well as having a practice in place to make sure that See, you, can, you can you can reach that. So now, as I heard you talk about practice, I'm thinking to myself, life in and of itself is a practice.
1: Well, there
2: you go. Right, and so that's I, that's an aha moment you know, that I've had you know, <laughs> sitting at the sure, table this morning. Right. It's 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 a practice, and so it's, it's Dr. Brown and I talk a lot about inclusion. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's a, that's been a challenge throughout the the country, and especially yeah. within organizations. Oh right? yeah, oh yeah. And and we understand the business case of of inclusion mm-hmm. because Scott Page at Michigan wrote the book years ago. The difference, and so the numbers are there, and so many organizations speak to the aspirations of wanting to be inclusive, but how can we get them to really practice? Many of them have DEI. Departments, but the real practice is still not happening. It's right. still a smokescreen that they put up. Given the philosophers, yeah. um, how would they see inclusion?
1: You know, philosophers tend to think big and act small. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have a big idea, you have a big dream. Well, if you don't figure out some pretty small deeds to do to support that, mm-hmm. it's just going to be a dream. And so you've got to you've got to assign some people, some small team someplace, y'all are going to be judged entirely on how you embody this new thing we care about called inclusion. Mm -hmm. You're going to be judged entirely on that. So come up with a plan. How are you going to operationalize this in our organization? And uh, you're going to be judged on how well you actually make it happen. Not on what people are saying, but what, what are people doing? I confronted this whole idea about inclusion and diversity in the book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, which came Mm -hmm. out in 1997, so Mm. quite a few years ago. And it occurred to me, more you understand, getting together a group of people who have different experiences, different perspectives, different knowledge, different frames of reference, you strengthen an organization because you're less likely to be blindsided by something nobody saw coming. Whereas if everybody thinks alike, there's so many blind spots you can't even number them all, right? <laughs> That's right? And so most organizations are that way. They hire people who are like them, who think like them, who look like them, who, and they're just creating massive, massive blind spots. They think they're creating strength because I know I can trust him; he's a lot like me. I know I can trust her; she's a lot like me. Um, but they're creating blind spots. So when you find people, you know, and I even in the book go through things like there are kinds of diversity that don't make any sense. Uh, We don't have any redheads. We need some redheads around here, right? Uh, right, Or or we got too many truth tellers. We need a few liars. You know, that's not not that kind of diversity anybody needs. So let's find the things that are important. And let's bring in So gender is very important. Uh, Racial background, ethnic background, the way you grew up. Man, you talk about different frames of reference and different perspectives and different inclinations. We want to strengthen this organization. We want to be so embracing of all that. And not enough organizations seem to get it. Mm-hmm. So they know they're supposed to be saying that now, talking about it. You know, We're going to look into that more. We're, we're, doing, we're trying to do something about it, but, but, but they don't. It, it, it slides from the aspirational into the hypocritical. Because they kind of put it over here someplace where it doesn't—it it doesn't really matter. There's a brass plaque on the door, but there's nothing happening in the organization. And so we got to—we got to show people how it's in their own interest. Mm-hmm. I wish we could motivate people just through ideas of justice. Mm-hmm. So did Aristotle, and good people can be motivated that way. But people who are living kind of messy lives, which a lot of people are you got to show them how it's in their interest mm-hmm. to embrace values that have been sort of things they've heard about and things that maybe they they say yeah that sounds good but they're not doing it mm-hmm. right life is a practice composed of practices mm-hmm. life is an art composed of arts the good thing about a practice or an art is that you can get better at it mm-hmm. you're never stuck First day you walk on a tennis court or a golf course or a basketball court, you're not going to look very good. But if you do it for that 10,000 hours, you're going to look a lot Mm. different. Likewise, with every art, with every practice, the more you do it, especially if you're hanging out with people who are a little farther down the road than you are, you're going to get better at it. You're going to get much better at it. And things that looked impossible for you to do, you're going to be all of a sudden doing. And uh, I talked about my gym years. I, uh, uh, I had never bench pressed before. I started off sewing an old guy my, my age, benching uh, uh, 85 pounds. Mm-hmm. That's, it was a Smith machine. And so you add mm-hmm. up the bar and all this. And... Uh, I said, well, that's what I should do. Well, I had this workout partner who would always be pressing me to be, let's do it a little more day. You're looking strong day, you're looking good day. This guy was always doing that to me. By the time I started when I was 58, by the time I was 63, I was bench pressing 315 pounds. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had said to me when I was benching at 85, I think you need to set it as your goal to bench 315, I would have thought, well, that's just stupid. Even with stuff that is great as inclusion, You tell people to set this dramatic goal all of a sudden, and they're just going to think, well, that's impossible. We can't do that. But set these little goals, incremental goals, incremental goals, and then all of a sudden you're benching 315. All of a sudden you've got this diverse organization where everybody feels included, but it has to happen in little ways with some people playing the role of my friend who always encouraging that new little implementation, that little increment of implementation. The practice grows. It strengthens. You all become artists of that thing but you do it together.
0: Yeah, so that you know that process <laughs> focuses another thing we talk about a lot and it kind of, you know, you said something else that resonates, you know, think big and act small. Yeah. And so in this space of inclusion, you were you were starting to talk about yeah. a little bit about, you know, you do make these incremental steps. It's a practice, you know. What would that actually look like in an organization?
1: Yeah, right? it, what
0: it, what you know, cuz people they get stuck because they don't know how to do right so we're going to talk a little bit about how what does that actually look like inside you know maybe it's a fortune 500 company or something that's trying to get on that journey where do all these things interface, right? The 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 small actions, the courage, et cetera. Yeah, How yeah. does that play out over time?
1: Well, Plato's lemonade stand. The book we started talking about today. Um, the first half is about the change that happens to you. The second half is about the change that will only happen because of you. And that's mm. where this kind of question comes up, right? Mm. And and the, the the part of the solution is. You've always got to gather a group of champions of change. Um, You've got got to find the people who are already committed to this idea, already believe in it, and they're going to spread the word. I mean, you find this, you know, uh, throughout world religions, you don't just have one guy. You have a guy and 12 close people, and one of them falls away, Mm -hmm. but the other 11 do a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you've got to start with small Uh, masters or champions of change. And you've got to start where the action happens, not just assign this to a team of people who are off in a corner someplace in the company, but make this happen with respect to managers who are accountable and responsible for results all the time. Win over some of these people. Be able to show how this works. Uh, Include people you wouldn't include in conversations, in decision-making conversations. That isn't so hard to do. Any manager can do that. You know, bring in Kathy. We've never asked her what she thinks before about stuff something like this. Brainstorm with your people ways that you can practice this every day. And that is the only way the talk becomes action. You know, it's got to be small things. It's gotta be, let's convene a group to talk about this and bring in people we've never listened to before. And boy, I tell you what, it's interesting in organizations. When you start going, bringing in more frontline people, in a lot of organizations, you're going to thereby get more diversity, more inclusion right there. People, are going to feel, people who haven't made it up to that pinnacle in the organization just because they didn't look like the people at the pinnacle already, right? You're going to bring in a more diverse group, and they're going to advise uh, people who are going to say, you know what? We need to include her more often. We need to have him in on these decisions more often, and then that starts to percolate through the organization. But it's slow. It rarely happens overnight. But you know what? It's way too slow. Those of us who've seen it work, who've seen it play out in really positive ways, we just say to ourselves, we've got to find ways to accelerate mm-hmm. the practices. Mm-hmm. And we can, but we've got to be actively looking for those ways and trying things and experimenting. A lot of people are afraid to experiment. It mm-hmm. comes to Aristotle mm-hmm. and courage again. Mm-hmm. No, we've never done it that way before. We've never done it that way before. As if everything is a stone wall that can't be taken down, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple, after his uh, years of exile, he said, "You know what? You got to think that nothing is nothing in human the human world is a permanent wall that can't be torn down. Right. We've got to tear down some walls to open up some vistas to make some great things happen. And when you start thinking about your work transformatively like that, okay, I'm going to take a sledgehammer this. wall. we've never done things that way before. We'll get, where's your sledgehammer? Because we need to work on that. Sometimes it, it's that phrase, famous phrase that's misused like everything else, creative destruction. Let's tear up the way we always been doing things around here, because if we keep doing things the way we've been doing things, we're going to get the results we've always been getting and nothing better. If you want better results, you better have better practices, and that's what I'm talking about here. So there are various ways to sell people on making those incremental changes that you look back after over two years, and you've got much healthier practices.
0: Sounds awful lot like current state of healthcare. In fact, I just yeah. wrote a blog around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. out today but it's it's interesting one of the most engaging leaders I ever had had a real simple way of doing this and basically anytime that that you were in a a meeting or a group with this person always at the end there would be an evaluation of the meeting and it was real simple what do we do well what do we not do as well Mm -hmm. but the powerful question was did you have an opportunity for your voice to be heard today? Mm -hmm. And the the fascinating thing Mm -hmm. about that particular practice, and it was a practice because it was Mm -hmm. every time, right? Initially, folks would think, well, okay, well, that's nice that I've got a chance to, to say something if I need to. Yeah. But over time, it became an obligation, <laughs> yeah. right? Because yeah. uh-huh. they, you know, over time they realize, you know, they try it, they test it. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking something. Let me put it in the room and see how it goes, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And then, you know, the leadership uh-huh. would really build on that idea yeah. and and say, okay. So in a very short time, yep, for all these folks, it became the standard practice. The expectation was that, hey, if they had something that might need to be heard. It was their obligation to put it in. It was the group's obligation to listen. Yeah, like and that. it was the collective obligation to figure out what to do with yeah. all the stuff yeah. that was that's put right. in there. It's right. very powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, see, that's a that in itself is a practice. Into meeting that way, the Stoics I'm reading now Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus. Um, <laughs> they had a, they had a practice at the end of every day to ask exactly those kinds of questions what did I do well today, today? What did I do badly today? What could I do different if I had this day to live over? Evaluate the day. People almost never do that. People almost never do it with a meeting. One of my favorite book titles years ago was the the title Death by Meeting, right? Mm -hmm, Because there's so mm -hmm. many bad meetings. Well, if if we all know that, it's like cultural wisdom, there's so many bad meetings, unnecessary meetings, meetings that didn't go well. Well, then evaluate at the end of every meeting. Because the only way you're going to improve your life is by evaluating your life and acting on that. The only way you're going to improve your meetings is by evaluating your meetings and acting on that. Let's make that a practice. Again, small things that can end up having big results. Mm -hmm. you got to find the right small things. And, the, the, and that's where your intelligence is challenged. How do we do that? Well, whoever had that idea of ending every meeting like that, that was a great idea. It's a small idea, but it has big consequences. You and know, that
0: It reminds me of the, the fourth question. I went over mm-hmm, the first three that were in that evaluation, mm-hmm. but the, it builds on the, the question that I highlighted. What perspectives that we need are missing? Yes. One of the hardest things to yes. see is what's missing a lot of yeah, times, right? right? But when you've... Now engage people that might just be otherwise relatively mm-hmm. unsure, uncertain. Yeah. Not, mm-hmm. They are often the source of what's missing. Yeah. And then you enhance the group further.
1: I like that. That's a, that's a great idea. Get people thinking that way, right? Get people thinking. Because the more they're thinking about, okay, what are we not doing? What's missing? The more they're asking that question, the more likely they're priming themselves to see what the answer is.
2: You know, uh, what came to mind was, a, a, I guess a quote, I'm not quite so sure who, who created it, but it, it says, um, you don't create your life, you create your habits, and your habits create your life, Yeah. yeah and yeah. as I listen to you talk about practice and habits, and I think about a friend of ours, uh, uh, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, there's six questions that he would ask, mm. and he says, I can't do this by myself. So I have someone call me every morning and I pay them to take me through these questions. Yeah. And he's of course you know, given those six questions to us and, and probably for six months I tried it. But he also says, it's simple but it's not easy. Yeah, right. And he says that he doesn't have the courage to do it by himself. And so I I reflect back on that because I'm reflecting back. I need to get back to my six questions every day, right? Yeah,
1: because, again, we're back to the buddy system. Yes. Don't go in the water alone. We all think if we're going to be great, we better be able to do this by ourselves. No. I mean, when I was in graduate school, um, a guy would call me every day at 3 p.m., demanding I had written three pages that day. He wasn't even uh, one of my professors. He was um, one of my wife's patients when she was a dental hygienist, but he was a famous historian who had written a lot of books on the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, all these big events. And he he told me, he said, three pages a day. In three months, you got a book, you got a dissertation. He said, but you got to discipline yourself. And I'm gonna call you every day at three o'clock in the afternoon to demand that you've written your three pages. And if you haven't, I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to tell you (laughs) stories about pathetic guys who 30 years later pull their dissertation out of a a dusty shelf and write a few sentences and put it back thinking they're going to actually finish their PhD. He said, I'm going to ridicule you. I'm going to humiliate you. Or if you've written your three pages, man, I'm going to congratulate you and pat you on the back. And he did. He called me every day, and pretty soon I knew that if I wanted a pleasant conversation and not an unpleasant conversation, mm-hmm. I better have three That's, right, that's real, right. right, or I better be a real good liar. That's, one right. Or the that's other. right. That's right. Now you
2: want to talk about accountability, right? That accountability partner, right? It's—I've never understood why organizations haven't established accountability partners yeah, within right. to, to get to get tasks done right to I make know. things happen yeah. we talk about accountability from a theoretical perspective yeah, but yeah. from a practical incremental perspective as you mentioned yeah the accountability partner is the answer
1: it, it, it is the answer I, a few years ago i developed this new understanding of the power of partnership in mm. our lives and i reread two ancient books uh, this was two years ago i reread the odyssey mm. uh Four times in the same year, different Mm. translations. And I reread the Iliad twice. Mm. And I came to realize... The Odyssey is about the power of purpose in a person's life. The Iliad is about the power of partnership in a person's life. And if you can have those uh, two things together, Aristotle seemed to think that the greatest human achievements are people, plural, in partnership, a certain kind of relationship for a shared purpose. Mm -hmm. People in partnership for a shared purpose. A partnership is inherently a situation of accountability. It's the buddy system. You cannot do this alone. Do not go into the water alone. Mm -hmm. Take a partner (laughs) with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you understand they're all once you get that understanding, you see all these great books like Dracula. Dracula, I read that a few times a few years ago for the first time in my life. And it's about a great evil a guy who's cultivated himself to be so powerful that nobody can stand up against him, but a bunch of friends get together and together they can stand up against him and take him down. The Three Musketeers is actually about four guys. One guy and his three musketeer friends mm-hmm. who stand up against a great evil nobody alone could take down, and they take it down. When you start looking for this theme, it's all through human literature. We've understood this for thousands of years. Let's do it.
2: How do you see things differently, right? That's that's really what you're talking yeah, about, right? right. And, and in the book that, that I've mentioned to you, Doc, that I was reading, Cracking Creativity, it asks the question, if I might evaluate this, given this statement, how many times could I see it? Mm-hmm. And so you wanna walk through yeah. how many times you can take a look at the same question yeah. and reframe it yeah. to address all the different scenarios. Yeah. And it's also back to the root of the what if question.
1: Yeah, mm. absolutely. And, and I increase my ability to do this by the inclusivity of my reading. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing in Buddhists and Hindus and and, and Muslims and and Greeks and Romans and uh, 17th century writers. And I'm not just dependent on the people who are a lot like me, who grew up in the same neighborhood as me, who went to the same schools as me. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to cast my net as widely as I can. And every one of these writers, every one of these groups of writers helps me see in a way I wouldn't have seen before Mm -hmm. and helps me do the what if, helps me do be more creative. My granddaughter wrote out something that I pe- posted on my laptop years ago uh, when she was in high school or middle school. Uh, See what everybody else is seeing, but notice what nobody else is noticing. Mm-hmm. Something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Think creative, mm-hmm. think differently. And you do that by exposing yourself to diverse sources of perspective. And that could be with the people you hang out with. That can be with the people you read. And you make yourself... More able to switch into different perspectives, mm. and one of them catches exactly what you needed at that moment. But if you had just thought the way you were always thinking, like they say, you're gonna get what you're always getting, you got to think <laughs> you new. Know? That's right,
0: that's right. Well, I tell you what, we could go on with this conversation, I feel like forever. <laughs> yes, I'm enriched, I'm excited, uh, you know, and and I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Hope you got something out of it. I hope you'll go to YouTube and check this out. It'll, it'll live there uh, at our page Unlikely Intersections. It will live on, uh, on Facebook, obviously. It'll be on our website, unlikelyintersection.com. If you need to catch me, uh, you can catch me on LinkedIn at Doc Philip Brown. Uh also am excited to to uh, announce that I've just oh. launched a new website docphilipbrown.com. Awesome. awesome. Terry, if they want to catch you, where would that you be? You can catch me at LinkedIn,
2: uh Terry Jackson PhD. You can also catch me on Facebook. It's been a great a great pleasure this morning just listening to um what Doc Brown and I a lot of what we've been talking about, yeah. right? And and that is having Different visions, being able to be able to, to see and yeah. to think and to co-create,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Tom, what would you leave everybody with? You know, it's a great chance to not only tell people where they can find you, but leave them with a little tidbit.
1: Well, you know, Socrates that long ago said we, we spend most of our time thinking about talking about uh, the least important things, mm-hmm. uh, the most. Uh, we need to spend our time talking about the, the most important things. And uh, the human conversation, what we're doing mm-hmm. today, you guys, this has been so much fun. I can tell you have fun every time you do this. This is what we ought to be doing with our friends. Yes. And use us as an excuse. Anybody who's <laughs> listening to this and watching this say, I heard these three crazy guys talking about some important things. And so that way, bringing up with your friends, what do y'all think about this? And uh, illumination will
0: happen. Mm, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much All for that. right. Yeah, well, we will see our audience back at the next intersection.